Section twenty of History of Egypt, Volume two by Gaston Maspero, read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Chapter two, the Memphite Empire, Part eight. We are not acquainted with the names of any of the men who conceived these prodigious works. The inscriptions mention in detail the princes, nobles, and scribes who presided over all the works undertaken by the sovereign, but they have never deigned to record the name of a single architect. They were people of humble extraction, living hard lives under fear of the stick, and their ordinary assistants, the draftsmen, painters, and sculptors, were no better off than themselves. They were looked upon as mechanics of the same social status as the neighboring shoemaker or carpenter. The majority of them were, in fact, clever mechanical workers of varying capability, accustomed to chisel out a bas-relief or set a statue firmly on its legs, in accordance with invariable rules which they transmitted unaltered from one generation to another. Some were found among them, however, who displayed unmistakable genius in their art, and who, rising above the general mediocrity, produced masterpieces. Their equipment of tools was very simple, iron picks with wooden handles, mallets of wood, small hammers, and a bow for boring holes. The sycamore and acacia furnished them with a material of a delicate grain and soft texture, which they used to good advantage. Egyptian art has left us nothing which, in purity of hue and delicacy of modeling, surpasses the panels of the tomb of Hosi, with their seated or standing male figures and their vigorously cut hieroglyphs in the same relief as the picture. Egypt possesses, however, but few trees of suitable fibre for sculptural purposes, and even those which were fitted for this use were too small and stunted to furnish blocks of any considerable size. The sculptor, therefore, turned by preference to the soft white limestone of Turah. He quickly detached the general form of his statue from the mass of stone, fixed the limits of its contour by means of dimension guides applied horizontally from top to bottom, and then cut away the angles projecting beyond the guides, and softened off the outline till he made his modelling correct. This simple and regular method of procedure was not suited to hard stone. The latter had to be first chiselled, but when, by dint of patience, the rough hewing had reached the desired stage, the work of completion was not entrusted to metal tools. Stone hatchets were used for smoothing off the superficial roughnesses, and it was assiduously polished to efface the various tool marks left upon its surface. The statue did not present that variety of gesture, expression, and attitude which we aim at to-day. They were, above all things, the accessories of a temple or tomb, and their appearance reflects the particular ideas entertained with regard to their nature. The artist did not seek to embody in them the ideal type of male or female beauty. They were representatives made to perpetuate the existence of the model. The Egyptians wished the double to be able to adapt itself easily to its image, and in order to compass that end, it was imperative that the stone presentment should be at least an approximate likeness, and should reproduce the proportions and peculiarities of the living prototype for whom it was meant. The head had to be the faithful portrait of the individual. It was enough for the body to be, so to speak, an average one, showing him at his fullest development and in the complete enjoyment of his physical powers. The men were always represented in their maturity. The women never lost the rounded breast and slight hips of their girlhood. But a dwarf always preserved his congenital ugliness, for his salvation in the other world demanded that it should be so. Had he been given normal stature, the double, accustomed to the deformity of his members in this world, would have been unable to accommodate himself to an upright carriage, 
and would not have been in a fit condition to resume his course of life. The particular pose of the statue was dependent on the social position of the person. The king, the nobleman, and the master are always standing or sitting. It was in these postures they received the homage of their vassals or relatives. The wife shares her husband's seat, stands upright beside him, or crouches at his feet as in daily life. The son, if his statue was ordered while he was a child, wears the dress of childhood. If he had arrived to manhood, he is represented in the dress and with the attitude suited to his calling. Slaves grind the grain, cellarers coat their amphorae with pitch, bakers knead their dough, mourners make lamentation and tear their hair. The exigencies of rank clung to the Egyptians in temple and tomb, wherever their statues were placed, and left the sculptor who represented them scarcely any liberty. He might be allowed to vary the details and arrange the accessories to his taste. He might alter nothing in the attitude or the general likeness without compromising the end and aim of his work. The statues of the Memphite period may be counted at the present day by hundreds. Some are in the heavy and barbaric style which has caused them to be mistaken for primeval monuments, as, for instance, the statues of Sapi and his wife, now in the Louvre, which are attributed to the beginning of the Third Dynasty or even earlier. Groups exactly resembling these in appearance are often found in the tombs of the Fifth and Sixth Dynasties, which according to this reckoning would be still older than that of Sapi. They were productions of an inferior studio, and their supposed archaism is merely the want of skill of an ignorant sculptor. The majority of the remaining statues are not characterized either by glaring faults or by striking merits. They constitute an array of honest good-natured folk, without much individuality of character and no originality. They may be easily divided into five or six groups, each having a style in common, and all apparently having been executed on the lines of a few chosen models. The sculptors who worked for the Mastaba contractors were distributed among a very few studios, in which a traditional routine was observed for centuries. They did not always wait for orders, but like our modern tombstone-makers, kept by them a tolerable assortment of half-finished statues, from which the purchaser could choose according to his taste. The hands, feet, and bust lacked only the colouring and final polish, but the head was merely rough-hewn, and there were no indications of dress. When the future occupant of the tomb or his family had made their choice, a few hours of work were sufficient to transform the rough sketch into a portrait, such as it was, of the deceased they desired to commemorate, and to arrange his garment according to the latest fashion. If, however, the relatives or the sovereign declined to be satisfied with these commonplace images, and demanded a less conventional treatment of body for the double of him whom they had lost, there were always some among the assistants to be found capable of entering into their wishes, and of seizing the lifelike expression of limbs and features. We possess at the present day, scattered about in museums, some score of statues of this period, examples of consummate art, the Kephrans, the Kiops, the Anu, the Nofrit, the Rahatpu I have already mentioned, the Sheikh el-Belid and his wife, the sitting scribe of the Louvre and that of Giza, and the kneeling scribe. Ka'apiru, the Sheikh el-Belid, was probably one of the directors of the corvée employed to build the great pyramid. He seems to be coming forward to meet the beholder, with an acacia staff in his hand. He has the head and shoulders of a bull, and a common cast of countenance, whose vulgarity is not wanting in energy. The large, widely open eye has, by a trick of the sculptor, 
an almost uncanny reality about it. The socket which holds it has been hollowed out and filled with an arrangement of black and white enamel. A rim of bronze marks the outline of the lids, while a little silver peg, inserted at the back of the pupil, reflects the light and gives the effect of the sparkle of a living glance. The statue, which is short in height, is of wood, and one would be inclined to think that the relative plasticity of the material counts for something in the boldness of the execution, were it not that though the sitting scribe of the Louvre is of limestone, the sculptor has not shown less freedom in its composition. We recognize in this figure one of those somewhat flabby and heavy subordinate officials of whom so many examples are to be seen in Oriental courts. He is squatting cross-legged on the pedestal, pen in hand, with the outstretched leaf of papyrus conveniently placed on the right. He waits, after an interval of six thousand years, until Pharaoh or his vizier deigns to resume the interrupted dictation. His colleague at the Giza Museum awakens in us no less wonder at his vigor and self-possession, but being younger, he exhibits a fuller and firmer figure with a smooth skin, contrasting strongly with the deeply wrinkled appearance of the other, aggravated as it is by his flabbiness. The kneeling scribe preserves in his pose and on his countenance that stamp of resigned indecision and monotonous gentleness, which is impressed upon subordinate officials by the influence of a life spent entirely under the fear of the stick. Benofir, on the contrary, is a noble lord looking upon his vassals, passing in file before him. His mien is proud, his head disdainful, and he has that air of haughty indifference which is befitting a favorite of the pharaoh possessor of generously bestowed sinecures, and a lord of a score of domains. The same haughtiness of attitude distinguishes the director of the granaries, no fear. We rarely encounter a small statue so expressive of vigor and energy. Sometimes there may be found among these short-garmented people an individual wrapped and almost smothered in an immense abaya, or a naked man, representing a peasant on his way to market, his bag on his left shoulder, slightly bent under the weight, carrying his sandals in his other hand, lest they should be worn out too quickly in walking. Everywhere we observe the traits of character distinctive of the individual and his position, rendered with a scrupulous fidelity. Nothing is omitted, no detail of the characteristics of the model is suppressed. Idealization we must not expect, but we have here an intelligent and sometimes too realistic fidelity. Portraits have been conceived among other peoples and in other periods in a different way. They have never been better executed. The decoration of the sepulchres provided employment for scores of draftsmen, sculptors, and painters, whose business it was to multiply in these tombs scenes of everyday life which were indispensable to the happiness or comfort of the double. The walls are sometimes decorated with isolated pictures only, each one of which represents a distinct operation. More frequently we find traced upon them a single subject whose episodes are superimposed one upon the other from the ground to the ceiling, and represent an Egyptian panorama from the Nile to the desert. In the lower portion, boats pass to and fro, and collide with each other, while the boatmen come to blows with their boat-hooks within sight of hippopotami and crocodiles. In the upper portions we see a band of slaves, engaged in fowling among the thickets of the river-bank, or in the making of small boats, the manufacture of ropes, the scraping and salting of fish. Under the cornice, hunters and dogs drive the gazelle across the undulating plains of the desert. Every row represents one of the features of the country, but the artist, instead of arranging the pictures in perspective, 
separated them and depicted them one above the other. End of section 20. Read by Professor Heather and By. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.